Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to Arkansas AgCast for November 19th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we talk about the results of this year's Arkansas Farm Bureau survey of the cost of traditional Thanksgiving dinner items, and we learn about how the pandemic has affected the logging and timber industry in Arkansas. We also get a lesson on the history of growing soybeans in the state, along with the details of a new survey of forest landowners and tips on battling bugs that cause problems for livestock. First, Kim Moore sits down with Arkansas Farm Bureau Director of Commodity Activities and Economics, Mark Lambert, to dig into the results of ARFB's 35th Annual Survey of the Cost of the Classic Thanksgiving Dinner and finds out if families will be saving on this year's holiday meal. Well, Thanksgiving is just a week away, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, I am visiting once again, like we did last year, with Mark Lambert. Mark is Director of Commodity Activities and Economics for Arkansas Farm Bureau. And we're here today to report the results of our annual Thanksgiving dinner meal cost survey. It's the 35th annual survey of food items typically included in the holiday feast. And Arkansas Farm Bureau partners with the American Farm Bureau Federation on this annual survey. And Mark, uh, once again, uh, our survey this year has revealed that uh, Arkansas consumers and families will be able to enjoy this meal very affordably. So uh, let's kind of break it down. Uh, I'm gonna just going to share right now the fact that our survey this year reveals that it will cost $57.14 on average to feed a family of 10. Now that's down 61 cents from last year's average of 57.75. But uh, Mark, still a bargain when you think that families can still enjoy this classic dinner for less than $6 a person. Yeah, yeah, Ken, that is, that is correct. Uh, you know, Arkansas consumers here, uh, we're very fortunate in the, in the eyes of uh, our dollar goes farther with uh, food consumption here in Arkansas, uh, comparatively speaking to like a California or a, big, or a bigger state. Um, so Arkansas consumers, they can actually have sit down around a table, 10 family members, and they can actually have an affordable meal such as this Thanksgiving dinner in which our survey, uh, shows this year. And again, we stress that, uh, uh, for purposes of this survey, it is not scientific, uh, but it is just a barometer, a snapshot, if you will, of how consumers, if you're living on a budget and if you will survey or shop for the best in-store prices for these uh, 15 items that are included on this survey. And this, uh, these items are consistent year to year. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, a four-pound half bone-in ham was added to the shopping list because people like ham as well as turkey for their Thanksgiving dinner. So that was added to the survey, and that uh, kind of helped bump up prices just a little bit. But, Mark, this year we found that turkey is up a little bit, while ham prices or pork prices are down, what's uh, what's behind that? Uh, pork prices pork prices have, have come down. Um, you know, we uh, looking at looking at over, I guess over the typical year, uh, right there around April May area, uh, our pork prices uh, kind of took a huge dip just because of the COVID interruption in the supply chain. Uh, our wholesale prices have also has also. Um, come up but the supply has actually come down uh strong export demand in china um 
one fourth of of the United States exports uh, are in or uh, pork exports, and they are going to China. You know, we're trying to make up some ground there in the Canadian market, uh, going into China, backfilling there. Um, turkey uh, it went up three cents a pound, which is minimal, but uh, you start looking at those proteins, and the proteins are half the price of that Thanksgiving meal, and that's that's your biggest cost. Um, your poultry processing plants they've they've remained open. You know, they've had a few disruptions. But once those birds start start growing, then they they have to go to those processors. Um, a little known, a little thing that I, I noticed in the fourth quarter this year on the pork side is our slaughter weights were up on carcass weights. So that that kind of goes to show you that that disruption there in April it started it started backfilling there um, a couple months out, and our slaughter weights started started going up. So. Well, that's good news, and the fact that uh, here in America, we say it every year, when we talk about our food supply, we have an abundance. I mean, despite COVID-19 and the disruptions that you just mentioned earlier this year, we're kind of catching up, you know, now. It's been, uh, that was in the uh, first quarter of the year when a lot of those disruptions, uh, some of those processing plants, especially in poultry houses, uh, shut down for a time, but now they're catching up. And we're going to continue to see an abundance. I mean, I've been in the supermarkets. I've been in the stores over the last couple of weeks. And almost every supermarket has an abundance of frozen turkey or ham available for families. There's not a shortage. That That's correct. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've been in supermarkets as well over the whole course of the last six months. And as you noticed, our protein prices uh, really in – I guess looking at turkeys and and hams or poultry and pork, uh, so to speak, you know those those prices really haven't fluctuated as much as what the beef market has. Uh, some restaurants around town, they I've noticed that they've started either surcharging beef, uh, in which we're fortunate on that on the poultry processing side that it's one of the cheapest, most affordable uh, protein sources in in the United States, just because those those birds can go to the processors a little bit faster and there's Obviously, there's processing efficiencies there. Um, processors are having a strong demand in the pork side as well, um, in which it kind of lowers that, it starts lowering that price. Um, I will say that, you know, all, we've had those 10 surveys, Ken, that all 10 of those surveys, the price deviated within uh, $20 there, which is $2 a person if you if you look at it, which is, which is great to see. Um, and the resilience of the American farmer, I think it just kind of goes to show you that, you know, all of, all of these processes uh, are very, very efficient. Um, going back to the farm level to where it keeps our food affordable and where we can actually go to the supermarket. And, and if I wanted a turkey tomorrow, I can buy that turkey right now. So I think that that just goes back to the goes back to the old saying that, you know, farmers are the most resilient people in the world. So that's, that's, uh, and I think that has a lot to do with this, the price of this survey being so low. Very well said. And they are, I mean, they use the latest research, they use the latest technology, and they are the most efficient producers of food, uh, in the world. And, and we're very fortunate to have, uh, this type of food production system. Let's dive just a little bit deeper, 
Uh, just for the benefit of our listeners, uh, our survey revealed this year that turkey prices, as Mark already said, are up three cents a pound from a dollar six to a dollar nine. Uh, half bone and ham actually decreased in price from two dollars six cents a pound a year ago to a dollar eighty six a pound this year. Uh, sweet potatoes, uh, a staple of many Thanksgiving tables, uh, are uh, down significantly from a dollar five cents a pound. Uh, to 95 cents a pound. So they dropped 20 cents. Uh, sweet potatoes did. So when we look at the produce, Mark, uh, whether it be potatoes, uh, we also included russet potatoes. That's a new item to the survey a couple of years ago as well. That actually increased about 30 cents, a five-pound bag of russet potatoes. So if you want mashed potatoes or sweet potatoes, it's still fairly affordable. And so most produce items that we saw are almost flat from a year ago. Uh, that that's correct, and you know the increases they're very very minimal on those produce sides. Uh, you mentioned that thirty cents on a bag of potatoes uh, increased, and if you spread that ac- across uh, ten people, I mean that that e- equals three cents. So, uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot of money. But uh, then again, you know they, it is it. I mean, it does cost money to every consumer. Uh, like I said, your biggest your biggest cost there are are the proteins. Uh, probably the next significant cost increase was the whole milk price yeah. of forty cents uh, this year. In which I think that has a lot to do with uh, stronger demand uh, in the export market, uh, driving the milk price up. Um, I will say that you know we we've had an increase. Um, USDA just just came out with their with their increase or outlooks for 2021, and going back to the feed price, the feed prices are starting to gain a little ground and starting to go a little bit higher. So USDA kind of pulled back and said, you know, milk prices milk prices may go up just due to that significant price of uh, feed. Uh, and also cows are producing more right now. I think it was like. 40 pounds of milk per cow um, but I, the next biggest driver in the increase in price was that 40 cents on on whole milk um, in which gained a little bit of traction there so and as we've reported many times over the last decade uh, Arkansas unfortunately is losing a lot of its family dairy farms uh, dairy is uh a lot of the fluid milk, if you will, uh, that we consume here in Arkansas is brought in from other states. And so as we look at uh, one other thing that's beneficial beneficial to consumers and uh, the production system is the fact that transportation costs, our fuel costs, remain very low. They've been low, uh, if you will, diesel and uh, regular gasoline prices have been down uh, under $2 a gallon almost all year long. So whereas it just four or five years ago, we were paying quite a bit more for fuel. Uh, that has to be uh, something that helps keep the price of food down as well. Uh, that's right. Uh, uh, we kind of joked around, you know, whenever the co- all the COVID hit and price of fuel went down to 89 cents to 99 cents, we started saying, well, you know, that's that's the price to bring it to market right there. Uh, a barrel of oil was in the negatives, um, which is which is crazy to me that that a barrel of oil would go negative but uh you started looking at the gas pumps and they started saying 89 cents a gallon 
uh, just due to the driver demand, it, it wasn't there, and we had so much oil out on out on the market. And now we're self sufficient in oil. Uh, we don't have to we don't have to rely on that transportation of oil or the pipelines coming over. Uh, so the cost of transportation, you know, they've it's it's decreased significantly than say five or six years ago. But um, I think bringing these things to, to market, you start looking at efficiencies, whether it's it's trucking cost or processing cost, and that's what helps that's what helps drive these costs back down. Um, every every company is always looking for that efficient, next efficient, best way to to uh, handle their processing. Earlier this year, because of COVID, and when so many people lost their jobs, were furloughed, if you will, Mark, and uh, and some may still be, of course, even today as we approach the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, we have such an abundance of food here in our country that many, uh, the Arkansas Food Bank, uh, many organizations were giving away food. I mean, we have an abundance so that we could help those families in need. And even as we approach the holiday uh, in a week, Many, many other organizations, churches, and other benevolent organizations will be sharing this meal because we have an abundance. And, that, and I think that's just a testimony to the efficiencies that you've already mentioned of our farmers and ranchers and how we are so fortunate in this country to have that abundance. Uh, that's right. You know, the efficiencies, they, they go all the way back to the market level to where um, you start looking at these prices and some of, some of the prices may be, uh, below even, and we have, we have triggers in place that, you know, can, can bring that price of food back down to a reasonable cost. You know, we, uh, us in America, uh, we always take, we always take for granted that we can go to the supermarket and buy a bag of, a bag of, uh, just say, uh, celery for a dollar, a dollar, um, it you know in in the real cost of everything that bag of celery may be a dollar fifty, but we have those triggers in place that that can bring that bring that cost back down, and which helps those people that may be struggling, maybe on on uh, on food assistance programs. So that's that is a true testament to our our food production system. It certainly is. Well, uh, once again. Uh, if you missed it at the very beginning of our conversation, uh, our annual survey, our 35th annual survey of the cost of the Thanksgiving dinner this year at Arkansas Farm Bureau revealed that it will cost $57.14 to feed a family of 10, down just a little more than 60 cents from last year's average. So uh, food prices just a little bit more affordable this year, despite uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, Mark, thank you very much for kind of helping us uh, look at the uh, results of this year's survey and, and kind of explaining why we're still able to enjoy such an affordable meal. I've been speaking to Mark Lambert. Mark is the Director of Commodity Activities and Economics for Arkansas Farm Bureau on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Next, more talks with Jarrett Rushing, Staff Chair for the Calhoun County Cooperative Extension Service, about how the pandemic has affected the logging and timber industry. Rushing also coaches and works with Hampton High School students and the school's forestry team, and he shared how they had to adapt to online competitions this year. On this edition of Arkansas AgCast, I'm speaking with good friend Jarrett Rushing. Uh, Jarrett is the uh, Cooperative Extension Service Staff Chair uh, down in Calhoun County, uh, and uh, Jarrett, uh, Calhoun County, as you may know, down there in south central Arkansas, uh, the 
large, the largest commodity, if you will, agricultural commodity in that part of our state is timber. Uh, and Jarrett works very closely with the forestry and timber industry in our state in South Arkansas. And Jarrett, thanks for uh, connecting with me again today. And uh, let's just talk uh, for just a few minutes about how as we approach Thanksgiving, we are just a few short weeks away from the end of this year. 2020 is about done. Uh, and it is one that we'll all remember because of COVID-19, because of the pandemic we've all been having to adjust to and deal with. It's still ongoing, and it's affected the work that we all do, and it's, I know, affected your work down there as an extension service agent leading your office there, working with the people in Calhoun counties and surrounding counties, really. From your perspective, uh, how has the pandemic, Jarrett, work, uh, affected the work you do with uh, our private forest landowners? <laughs> Man, you started off with a bang on that one. Uh, COVID has really, really, really put a wrench into the way that we operate through extension service. Uh, whenever it first happened and everything first started coming out in March and April, it it really handcuffed on us on what we could and couldn't do. We couldn't go out and, and do farm visits uh, on site. We, we couldn't hold uh, meetings. So much like everybody else in the state, we had to get really, really creative. But with the, you know, the blessing, if you will, of social media, with the, um, the advancements of technology as far as virtual meetings and things like that goes, we have persevered and we've been pushing on so you have done that you've been able to communicate i know that the division of agriculture has uh, worked extensively utilizing zoom meetings all year long uh and communicating with the people you would normally meet with in person that way but uh, kind of going beyond that how have the effects the economic effects if you will affected our logging and timber industry, from your perspective, uh, what's happening with the mills down in your area? That's a good question. Now, I will say this before we go any further. is I am not an economist, so talking sure. talking economics really isn't my thing, but I can say that from, you know, just, just public perception and seeing the, the timberland around here, it really hasn't slowed logging down much. What we ran into worse this year than anything was the fact that it was such a dry year. And I know that that sounds a little funny because we did have the tropical storm blow through. Uh, we, it seemed like during the summer it was every other week we were getting rain, but it was heavy torrential rains that were soaking up or running off relatively fast. So the lands down here were were not near as um, inaccessible, if you will, as they have been in previous years. So loggers were able to work all the way through, barring the meals having a demand for the timber. That's encouraging. I've seen, you know, traveling that part of the state, a lot of log trucks coming mm -hmm. from uh, logging and harvest sites. So I've, you know, noticed that they have been uh, cutting timber and uh, harvesting timber uh, throughout the year. But uh, so I'm encouraged that that is continuing, despite the weather, because uh, in your part of the state, I guess it didn't affect the work nearly as much as it did, if you will, over in the Delta, where it slowed uh, the planting of crops and it has slowed mm -hmm. and delayed harvest just a little bit to the east of you there, but it didn't affect our logging industry, evidently. 
Yes, sir. Think about it from this standpoint. Here we are in November, and normally this is what we consider a wet season in Arkansas, but yet loggers are in some of the most swampy bottoms able to log right now because the ground is so dry. They're not rutting things up, and the weather itself has been phenomenal. Uh, Again, what we ran into was a, a curse of supply and demand because with COVID, one of the things that we saw was a, a slight bump up in housing starts. So, of course, the, the timber products were in high demand, but there was such an availability of logs and, and you know, wood to hit the mills that we ran into a surplus of wood. So, mills had to start putting loggers on quotas. They, they had to restrict what they could and couldn't take because they just couldn't process in the time to get it shipped off. Now, one of the things that saved the logging industry this year, and this is a blessing, if you will, and I'm not saying that anything associated with COVID has been a blessing, but from a silver lining standpoint, whenever the pandemic first hit, sanitary paper products became one of the most high-demand items across the United States of America. Yeah. And and meals such as GP, uh, meals such as Warehouse, or those that, that make some of the the sanitary paper products, they were running full blast, and they they could just barely keep up with the demand of sanitary paper products. Yes. Uh, the, people were hoarding back in the spring, and you couldn't find those products on the store shelves at all. Uh, so that was, as you say, a blessing in disguise for that part of the industry. And, uh, and as you said a moment ago, housing starts, the demand, I mean, uh, for homes is uh, is – good right now interest rates are good if you will and so mm-hmm. uh, construction crews are are busy and and that again is another little silver lining for the wood products industry isn't it it is it is and that's that's the one thing <laughs> timber industry is a very unique player because it's not about the supply and demand of one particular product such as your corn products if you will and i hate to use corn as the scapegoat here but from a corn standpoint you're talking about a food source, you're talking about wildlife, and then uh, biofuels. You know, uh, basically sums it up into three different products that are most high in demand. But you turn around with timber, and you've got lumber, you've got paper products, you've got fuel, uh, people that are getting ready to fill their stoves with heating pellets. You're talking about just just a wide range of different uses for paper products and sure. or wood wood products that is so that that kind of saves our industry if you will on another topic uh I know you work very closely there with students at Hampton High School uh and down in south central Arkansas that part of the state there are competitions mm-hmm. uh for the students they're learning about the timber industry they're learning about forestry. Uh, how to identify trees, and there are some annual competitions there. I mean, we've read and we know all about other how the COVID has affected all sorts, all sorts of uh, high school and collegiate competitions, if you will. And many mm-hmm. schools are right now, many schools, because of this second wave of COVID, if you will, are having to go back home again. They're shutting down for a week or two to uh, resume virtual learning. So. Uh, I know you work closely with the team there at Hampton High School. How did that uh, affect you and, and the team there with uh, these competitions that they train all year long for? Oh, absolutely. That's a great question. The one thing I want to say is my hats are off to the seniors that graduated in May of 2020. 
Oh, yeah. uh, they they ran they ran into something that is unprecedented, something that I hope that in our lifetime we never see again. But they watched the country shut down and basically just handcuffed them on any extracurricular activities they could do. That's right. Um, last last year we started practicing heavy uh, in January, and of course we had a few little small competitions that we we ventured off to. Uh, I hosted mine down here in Calhoun County and had another great showing, over 100 competitors down here. And about the time this started getting real, uh, towards the middle end of February, you're talking about just on the verge of going to the district FFA contest and qualifying for the state FFA, the state 4-H contest, the O'Ramas, and everything came to a screeching halt. Uh, it wasn't until middle of the summer that FFA and some 4-H events were deemed safe to do online, and they, they were altered, if you will, to be online. And these kids were able to compete, but not to the caliber that they normally would have. Because there's, there's a lot of differences looking at an actual standing tree, doing the measurements, trying to figure out what it is versus looking at pictures on a PowerPoint presentation. Oh, yeah. No doubt. I mean, it's an in-person, you need to be out in the woods and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in a stand and, and you know, demonstrating your knowledge uh, of, of that stand and those trees and how to identify them. It is all different. I cannot imagine trying to do that online, you know, uh, as well. So uh, I guess it just, so I guess my question would be, were there any sorts of online competitions or were those just postponed until 2021? Oh, absolutely. Good. I, I, my fault. I've kind of misinterpreted your question there. There were some online competitions uh, in the middle of summer. Uh, the state FFA contest was held virtually uh, where they sent out a link to the registered competitors, and they had a 12-hour window or an 8-hour window. Don't quote me on either one of those, but it was uh, basically a full day to complete an entire forestry contest. Okay. Now, most now put that into perspective, normally these kids will compete in the woods and they'll be done with the entire contest realm within two or two and a half hours. So mm-hmm. they, they were given ample amount of time. They were sitting in front of a computer screen. Um, so, of course, it raises some eyebrows as to, and, and I hate to use this term, but who might have been uh, looking or ha- having a book or something handy? <laughs> but... Yeah. You know, the the beauty of this is is these kids, these ag teachers, these extension agents, all of these individuals have a lot of integrity about them. And once the dice fell, I think that the right teams won overall, the right kids won overall. Uh, it, was, it was an extremely uh, well-designed, well-formatted competition for the situation. Good news. Good to know. And uh, so how did your Hampton team do? Overall, well, we uh, we we were uh, up in the uh, the upper tier again. Uh, we we didn't win at all uh, either the the well, we didn't win the state FFA contest. However, one of my kids, I think you interviewed him about three years mm-hmm. ago, Evan Beaver. I remember uh, he you. ended yeah. up yeah he ended up getting high point individual at the FFA contest and then turned around and did the virtual state Orama contest and ended up winning it as well. Well, that's congratulations to Evan. That's outstanding, and uh, I'm, glad that, I'm glad they were able to compete that way and, and demonstrate their knowledge and their skill. And let's just all hope and pray that uh, as we go through this school year, 
get into 2021. We know that uh, there are reports now that some vaccines are being proven effective. We've just got to get those out to the public, and then hopefully this pandemic will run its course and life and education uh, can return somewhat to normal. That's what we're hoping for. No doubt. Well, Jarrett, thank you so much for your involvement with the young people down there through the uh, school and uh, and your support of our logging and timber industry and all you and your colleagues do around the state. I know uh, our county extension service agents uh, have all had to adapt uh, to this new normal, if you will, and we appreciate uh, what you do to help support our different commodities, our farmers and ranchers, and in your area, our loggers down there. So appreciate your time today, Jarrett. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. And I want to take just a second and say thank you to Arkansas Farm Bureau, too. Y'all are great supporters of ours, and without y'all's support, it would be extremely difficult for us to do our job. So thank y'all as well. We're a team. We're a team, buddy, and uh, we, we we work together well uh, to help our producers of whatever commodity they are uh, it is that they're uh, raising and growing be successful i've been speaking with jared rushing uh, the uh, staff chair of the calhoun county cooperative extension service on this edition of arkansas agcast now greg patterson talks to dr emily mcdermott assistant professor in the department of entomology and plant pathology at the university of arkansas system division of agriculture about battling bugs that adversely affect livestock This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, our guest today is Dr. Emily McDermott at the University of Arkansas. She's a Ph.D. in medical and veterinary entomology, and you're brand new at the university, so welcome, Dr. McDermott. Thank you very much. Yeah, I just got to Arkansas a little over two months ago, I guess. Okay, so uh, let's pretend we're playing Scrabble, and uh, we're going to put the word entomology on the board. How are you going to define that so I don't tell you that you can't use it? (laughs) Uh, So entomology is the study of technically insects, but uh, we tend to rope in basically all, not all arthropods, but ticks, spiders, mites, scorpions, centipedes, millipedes. Uh, any sort of creepy crawlies like that. <laughs> so all the fun things that people don't want to run into in their home, but, but tend to be around the farm. They'll be around the farm, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So so tell us some um, about, um, let, let's look at, you know, midges, which I guess, you know, for lack of a better term, you can call biting flies, you know, CMs or things like that. And then, then the, the famous ones that everybody has to deal with, ticks and mosquitoes. Uh, What kind of work have you been doing in in regards to those uh, insects? Sure. So my uh, background is, you know, right in all of those things, um, vector biology, and especially in regards to um, insects and ticks that transmit pathogens to animals. Um, and so, and just, just so people who are listening understand that when you say vector biology, you're talking about the, the pathways of transmission, correct? Yes. So a vector is an insect or a tick or a mite that is going to uh, transmit or move pathogens between two different animals, either by feeding or just by 
landing on something that's contaminated and then, you know, landing on that animal and its iris mouth. And, and what are some of those uh, vectors of transmission that are common on livestock operations or on the farm? Uh, so the the real big ones um, are, I think, the, the ticks and the biting midges in terms of um, arthropods that are going to be um, transmitting pathogens biologically. And by that, I mean um, they're going to feed on an infected animal, take up that pathogen, um, it's going to replicate inside of them, and then they'll transmit it again when they bite on another animal, um, as well as the filth flies um, that are not only, you know, nuisance biting pests, but can also transmit pathogens mechanically. Um, so in that case, you can think of them as a, a dirty needle with wings where they're on an infected animal and moving between animals and basically have, you know, infected blood on their mouth parts that's transmitting that pathogen that way rather than the pathogen getting inside of the insect itself. So so if you and I were walking uh, at a farm, let's say a livestock operation that has cattle, may have some, um, you know, goats, horses, whatever, what would be some of the um, habitat, the places where these uh, uh, ticks, mosquitoes, midges live that, that a farmer's going to have to pay attention to to begin to control uh, the movement of disease? Well, depending on what group we're interested in, there's a number of different areas on you know, an average farm that could be potential issues. So for things like uh, biting midges and mosquitoes, we would be really concerned about standing water. Um, right. So either things like uh, wastewater ponds on dairies um, are a real typical habitat for biting midges, um, but also, you know, troughs spill over. Any sort of puddles that might form around those areas can be potential habitat. Uh, for filth flies, you know, manure, silage can be a big issue for things like stable flies. Um, and then for ticks, we would be really concerned about any brush that might be, um, you know, on the pasture, making sure those kinds of habitats are cleared up so they're not providing good, you know, high humidity habitats for ticks to hang out in. Now, when we go out, uh, when humans go out to hike or to, you know, be in the outdoors and whatnot, you know, we immediately start thinking about, oh, we're going to put some bug spray on or something like that to keep uh, these pests off us so so they don't transmit disease to us. But when you're on a farm, a uh, livestock operation and everything, you've got to do much more than that and and explain you know, some of the work you've you've been involved with and looking at how that's accomplished. And you're talking about protecting yourself from pests on well, farm or protecting, protecting stock, you know, more okay. than anything else. I mean, humans, we normally just grab a can of bug spray, but there's more yeah. to it when you're on a farm. Yeah, so there are a number of different products that um, you can use to protect animals on a farm. Um, things like porons and ear tags are real commonly used uh, tools. Um, but you can also use some more um, 
non-chemical methods. So if you're developing or you want to develop an integrated pest management program for your operation where you're trying not to rely as much on chemicals, um, then you can use things like uh, dust bags can help um, keep ticks and mites and things, ectoparasites especially, in check on animals. Um, you know, we talked about habitat, um, managing those habitats, um, you know, making sure if you've got a leaky water line somewhere that's creating a cross puddle that those kinds of things get fixed. Um, and, you know, monitoring your animals as well. Um, so if, you know, you start seeing lots of ticks on the ears of your cattle, um, then maybe it's time to either reapply something or um, to switch to a different control method because, you know, with some of these, especially chemical control methods, there are resistance issues. Um, so it's important to kind of revisit what you're using um, and cycle through a few different methods to make sure that you're not relying too heavily on one particular um, chemical or class of chemicals. Now, you probably don't have actual, you know, dollar figures um, at the ready, but speak in general terms about the effect on the livestock industry that um, insect-borne diseases can have. Is it is it quite substantial? Is there a lot of input costs by the, the uh, farmer rancher to try and control these things? So it's, I would say that a lot of the costs are going to be kind of sneaky things. Um, so right. certainly in some cases you've got you know, costs associated with treating for specific vector-borne diseases. Um, but a lot of times we're talking about things like reduced weight gains, um, reduced milk yields, yep. um, stress from animals that's going to prevent them from, you know, uh, really getting to the, the best quality that that particular animal could be. Um, so I think for horn flies, um, you know, we can talk about, you know, 17-pound reduction in weaning weights for every 100 flies feeding on a cow. Um, really? That, that number comes from um, one of our uh, cooperative extension fact sheets on controlling horn flies on cattle. Um, so, you know, these can be pretty serious economic losses um, that come from not controlling these insects. So, so go ahead and repeat that figure because I bet a lot of folks, even even folks who are in the business may not know that. Sure. Um, so I'm talking about uh, horn flies, um, and the figure that I have is that um, you can see up to a 17-pound reduction in calf weaning weights for every 100 flies on that calf. Okay, so so we know that um, uh, research backs that up, and and if, if put yourself on that farm, and what kind of advice are you giving to that farmer to deal with that specific problem? So to deal with horn flies, um, you're going to want to probably use a combination of um, chemical control methods, so things like the porons and the ear tags. Um, but you can also use mechanical control measures, um, like box fruit traps. Um, so these are basically um, boxes that you're going to walk cattle through that will dislodge those insects um, and trap them inside 
um, as a method of trying to actually physically remove some of those insects from the habitat. Um, it can, depending on what sort of operation there is, um, these flies develop in fresh manure. Um, so in some instances, manure management may or may not be, uh, you know, a, a reasonable option for uh, controlling corn fly development as well. You know, obviously, if you've got, you know, 100 acres of cattle on pasture, then it's going to be more difficult to go out and, you know, make sure you don't have cow pests flying around. But on smaller operations, it might be easier to, to clean up those areas um, and reduce that breeding habitat. Now, it's interesting because um, what you're saying is, is you know, there's only 24 hours in a day and farmers are, are so tied up in, in doing so many things. And, and this, this type of work that needs to be done and paid attention to seems like it's constant. And it also seems like it may be the, the drudgery type work, but it's really important, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, it's it's important in terms of, you know, animal welfare, um, in terms of keeping your animals as healthy um, as they can be. Um, and it's important in terms of the economics, right? So, you know, every producer will have to kind of make that decision of what you put in versus what you get out, right? Um, so, uh, you know, there's some people might decide to do all of these things and develop a really intensive IPF management program for a particular pest. Um, if it's been a real issue for them in the past, maybe that's something that it's worth investing in. Um, and other producers might decide, you know, I'm just going to do ear tags. Um, and so I think it's probably a very personal decision um, deciding what you're able to do what makes sense for you as far as your bottom line and as far as the particulars of your operation go. Now, you mentioned uh, two positions that are very important to, to farmers and ranchers, and one of those being their veterinarian, the other one being a county extension agent. Um, you're in research and teaching mode and and it's their job to absorb what you find out uh, through your research and then get it onto the ground. And, and uh, what are some of the ways that that happens? How important is the, the veterinarian, the large animal vet, and the, and the county extension agent? And I think it's really important that, you know, all of these individuals that we all work together. So um, in a lot of cases, I'm not the one on the farm every day, um, and so if a, a farmer sees something wrong with their animal, then maybe they call their vet or they call the county extension agents, um, and, you know, if they're not able to get it resolved, then, you know, maybe then they start looking for an outside expert, and that's potentially where I could come into play here. Right. Um, and so, you know, helping to identify maybe, a, you know, we have Asian longhorn tick in Arkansas, although it's, you know, not terribly common, it doesn't seem. But if somebody finds a weird tick on an animal, um, you know, they can send it to the county extension agent. Um, you know, people could theoretically send things to me um, and be able to um, make those connections and, and help people figure out what's going on with their animals. 
um, in terms of actually communicating the research that I'm going to be doing. Um, I'm planning on working pretty closely with our extension entomologists to be able to um, both target the research that I'm doing to the needs of the producers in the area um, and also to be able to um, go to the right venues to be able to communicate that. So um, things like continuing education events, um, developing new fact sheets um, and you know press releases through the Division of Agriculture, um, trying to make sure that uh, what we're doing actually goes back to the field. That sounds great. Now, do you have also a, a teaching component that you're going to be involved with at the university itself? Is that part of what you're doing? Yes, so I have a 20% teaching appointment, um, which basically means that I'll be teaching about one class at the university per year. Um, so next year I will be developing a medical and veterinary entomology course um, that's going to be aimed at uh, upper level undergrads as well as uh, grad students, um, and this will be not just livestock entomology, but a, a real broad introduction to medbed entomology. Um, so, you know, everything from malaria to horn flies to, uh, you know, fleas on dogs. Um, so I'll, I'll be teaching that um, and then uh, probably developing another class. Um, and I am interested in potentially uh, developing an applied livestock entomology class um, aimed at uh, students who are looking for uh, careers in animal ag. Well, it sounds like your students are, are going to get a, uh, a good class uh, in regards to what you're going to be teaching there at the university. Step back a minute now and, and tell us, um, you know, what you were doing before you got to the University of Arkansas. I understand you were at, at Walter Reed and doing some, some studies over there on the East Coast. Yeah, so prior to joining the faculty here at the University of Arkansas, I uh, served as a senior scientist of the Vector Control Department at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research in Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, so this is actually not a hospital. Um, you know, that's usually what people right. think is that I'm at right. Big Walter. Um, but we're just down the road from them. Um, and so a lot of what I did for the Army as a civilian uh, was researching um, and testing some new vector control and bite prevention tools um, that would be useful to the warfighter um, in the field. So the Army has some pretty specialized needs for vector control. Um, there's certain things that, you know, a product needs to do um, to be useful for the Army. And so, um, we tried to figure out things that would be, you know, cheaper, faster, lighter, safer, easier to use with less training um, that we could put into the hands of soldiers pretty quickly. Right. Um, so we did some work on um, attractive toxic sugar baits using um, low toxicity insecticides um, that would be sort of cheaper to implement and be able to used without as much, you know, protective equipment and things like that. Sounds, sounds like building a better mousetrap. Pretty much, yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is 
Dr. Emily McDermott, uh, brand new to Arkansas in the last two months. And again, Farm Bureau wants to welcome you aboard as you'll be working in medical and veterinary entomology, teaching at the university, working with the extension agents, doing research, and and in a different way from Walter Reed, you'll be uh, fighting the bug wars here. So uh, yep. we appreciate the time you've spent today on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, and thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you so much. It was great to speak with you today. In honor of Arkansas Soybean Month, Keith Sutton visited with Doug Hartz, grandson of the man who was instrumental in bringing soybeans to Arkansas, to look back at the origin of the state's top row crops. Welcome to AgCast. This is Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau, and today my guest is Doug Hartz, president of Hearts Farm Management Incorporated in Stuttgart, Arkansas. Doug, welcome to AgCast. Well, thank you, Keith. It's a pleasure to be with you here in the middle of November and a bright, sunshiny day in the middle of, of uh, soybean month in Arkansas. That's right. Uh, you've heard uh, Governor Hutchison de- declared November to be uh, Arkansas Soybean Month, and there's some good reasons for that. Uh, soybeans are our number one row crop, as you well know. You've uh, been very active in the soybean world. Uh, you've been an active member of the Soybean Promotion Board, the Soybean Association, uh, both in Arkansas and the American Soybean Association. I know uh, soybeans are near and dear to your heart. Well, there's, of course, uh, you know, growing up in the in the family uh, here in Stuttgart, uh, where soybeans were our life, so to speak. It, uh, I guess you might say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree sometimes, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, just been blessed to to uh, be able to continue that, uh, you know, service to an industry uh, like some of the folks that that uh, you know gone before me and and. Uh, you know, it's it it just uh, there's a lot of people in this state that that uh, you know give it their time, whether it's to you know the Farm Bureau or the Soybean Association or the Rice Council or just uh, Cotton Council or others, you know, and and now, right. you know that it takes a takes a volunteer effort to to make things go. Well, your family has a very interesting history with soybeans. In fact, uh, your grandfather, Jake Hart Sr., uh, was actually one of the people that first brought soybeans to Arkansas. And we uh, thought we'd give you a call today and see if you would mind sharing that story with our listeners because it is a very interesting story. Well, it it, uh, it it's you know quite phenomenal, and and uh, as I've said before, you know it's pretty awesome to to you know drive across this part of the state and see field after field of soybeans, and and uh, um, to think that you know my grandfather was an integral part of of all of that taking place, and and. Uh, um, so it's, it's pretty, pretty, uh, mind boggling, I guess you might say humbling 
to, to think of in those terms. But um, my my grandfather was was born in Racine, Wisconsin, and um, eventually moved to Arkansas, where he was a sales representative for the P&O Plow Company. And um, um, for those, you know, people that are into antique farm equipment and whatnot, that name probably sounds sounds familiar to them. But yeah. uh, he, he called on implement dealers, you know, in this general area and and uh, representing the uh, P&O Plow Company. And uh, eventually... Um, opened a hardware store in Wheatley. And um, uh, several of my my aunts and uncles were born in Wheatley, and then and then uh, the rest were born here in Stuttgart when he subsequently moved to Stuttgart. But uh, he he came to know a gentleman by the name of A. R. Thrill, and they eventually um, became partners, and they had the international, or actually the McCormick, which was the predecessor to to uh, International Harvester. They had the McCormick agency, as they called it at those times, uh, in Stuttgart, DeWitt, and eventually in Carlisle for a short period of time. And... Uh, so they also, um, you know, in addition to, you know, the implements had some other stuff, you know, going on. And so that's kind of how they started their association, you know, their relationship. Right. Now, we should tell people this was quite a while back. This is back in probably the the early 1900s. Yes. And, and, uh, um, it escapes me as to when my grandfather, uh, you know, started his hardware business, but uh, that would have probably been the, the late 19-teens, early 1920s. Right. Um, because, uh, you know, it was in the mid-1920s when the actual introduction of the soybean came about uh, over here on the on the prairie. And, uh, you know, at that time, you know, cotton was probably one of the largest crops here in the state, but a lot yeah. of rice was being grown here. And and uh, um, before and this was before, you know, there was a lot of commercial fertilizer being put out. Right. Everybody had cattle to some degree. And so... With the you know cultivation of a rice crop and the nitrogen use that's associated with that, um, you know, they need to find a way to kind of help build the soil back up. And so they felt like the soybean, since it's a plant that that you know fixes its own nitrogen, would be a would be a good plant for that. And so they obtained some Laredo variety soybeans and uh, kind of distributed those around for people to plant. And 
some people, you know, planted them to to harvest for hay, you know, after they, you know, did all their vegetative growth and whatnot. Right. To feed, to feed cattle, and then and then some people, you know, worked them into the soil as as a green manure crop to help build back soil fertility. And of course, you know, we see a lot of that going on, not necessarily in manure crops, but we see a lot of cover crop activity and whatnot going on today. Right. So, so, so uh, you know, both those somewhat similarly related. And then, of course, obviously there was there were some that went on to maturity and were harvested to, to process, you know, for seed. And to their uh, great pleasure, soybeans really took off after that first crop was planted around 1925. That's that's correct. And and uh, so they, and, and then, of course, when all of this was coming about, uh, you know, they did custom harvesting and those type things. And, and uh, um, they're, you know, as business began to expand, then, you know, they kind of reached a point to where they needed to, you know, do some future planning for the business and, and uh, um, not sure what the impetus was for for uh, how they did that uh, or what, but uh, Mr. Threll uh, basically maintained the implement uh, and equipment business and my grandfather uh basically branched off and, and uh continued on with the seed business and, and uh created Jacob Hart Seed Company from there. And that's a name that's very well known now amongst uh row crop farmers and, and others in the ag industry. Uh your grandfather was somebody people really looked up to and and that business uh took off and you're uh, sort of still carrying on that legacy. Well, and 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 one thing I'd like to mention too, Keith, is is that you know, back during this time of you know, let's kind of fast forward from the introduction back in the mid twenties, and then we're getting into the you know forties, the fifties, the sixties when agriculture you know was in it uh, you know an expansive mode, you might say. Right. And and uh, you know soybeans became more popular and whatnot, uh, and with all the various crops, particularly you know soybeans, rice, um, oats to a certain degree, some wheat. Well, you know there was a there was a tremendous amount of seed production on the Grand Prairie at that time, and right. You know, people like Leland Stratton uh, started his seed business. Carl Bogart started his seed business. And, and so um, they were just uh, the Stecco Seed Company down at DeWitt. They were just a tremendous amount of seed production on the prairie because of its irrigation capabilities and the cultural practices and the, and the way people took care of their crops and whatnot. It was it was a an area that was known for its high quality seed. 
very much so. And again, as the seed business started growing, soybeans continued to uh, spread not just on the Grand Prairie, but all over uh, parts of Arkansas. That's right, and 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 um, you know the soybean it, it's a very versatile crop, and and uh, you know it can be planted on you know heavy clays into lighter sands. It just has a lot of of, of adaptability to different soil types and conditions, right. and and um, you know back even as late as, you know, maybe 20 years ago, you know, it seems like people were considered, you know, they were considered a rice farmer or they were considered a cotton farmer, you know. And and soybeans just kind of went on anything else that they weren't planting their, quote, designated crop on. Right, right. And, and but now, you know, with, with, Improved varieties, some of the technologies that have come about, and and whatnot, to where you know it's not uncommon for for people, you know, under high management situations, to be you know seventy, eighty, some cases ninety bushels an acre. And of course, in a in a contest, you know, some contest scenario, you know, exceeding a hundred bushels per acre, and and uh, um, so now it's I think really soybeans have kind of come to to the uh, forefront, so to speak, as as uh, you know a crop that that maybe isn't as you know thought of as a second crop. That, you know, right. Well, I did a little checking this morning just to dig uh, up a few facts. Last year here in Arkansas. Farmers planted 2.61 million acres of soybeans. That's almost one tenth of the whole area of Arkansas was planted in soybeans. That's more than all the rice, corn, sorghum, and wheat combined. And right. uh, together, that's that's about a two to three billion dollar a year boost to the Arkansas economy thanks to soybeans. Uh, that's pretty amazing. From 1925 to 2020, uh, we've grown that much, and it all started right there with your grandfather. Well, and, and soybeans, you know, have a tremendous economic impact, no doubt about it. And, and uh, you know, soybeans are used for just so many things. But, you know, you think about all the, the the dollars that are pumped into the economy to produce soybeans, and then you think of transportation, value-added products. Uh, you know, I think m- most people might not realize, uh, you know, how much soybean consumption takes place in their everyday life. You know, right. the, the chicken that they're that they're eating, as an example. You know, was fed a ration of of corn and and uh, soybean meal. Um, you know, the uh, uh, vehicle that they're driving it may have plastic parts on it that have originated from soybean oil, uh, or the the newsprint uh, 
that or magazine that they read. A lot of times those inks are made with with soybean oil due to their you know positive characteristics. So people are utilizing soybeans every day, and and they they really don't realize it. That's true for sure. I you know, too never... many people too many people keep think their food comes from the grocery store. That's right. And and right. it 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 comes from agriculture. It comes from producers, uh, people that are producing the the protein, like you know chickens and pork and beef, fish, uh, and the, and the farmers that are raising the the things like corn and soybeans and and other grains that that help those industries add value to the food chain. Well, it's probably fair to say if it hadn't have been for soybeans, we might not be one of the country's biggest poultry producers. If it hadn't been for soybeans, we might not have been one of the country's biggest catfish producers. This extends in all directions when you start looking. Uh, I remember, I want everybody to hear a story you told me once before. I hope you remember it. You told me uh, when you were just a youngster, uh, your grandfather used to put you back on a on the planter with a little envelope of seeds. Can you can you recall that story and tell everybody that story again? Well, it it uh, uh, I, I need I need to kind of straighten you out a little bit on that. Okay, but, but okay. Uh, it, it wasn't my grandfather cause, oh, because because okay. uh, uh, my grandfather died in the uh, early '60s, and and I, though I had you know been around him some. Um, I think I was about uh, oh four or five years old when he passed away, but no, I was I was uh, I guess about thirteen or fourteen years old, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Curtis Williams was the head of our R and D department, and that time uh, Art Seed Company had made a transition from from being a a producer and conditioner of public varieties only to developing their own varieties you know much like much like the companies you know that are doing today like pioneer and asgro etc and so before you know we got to the point where we were you know more advanced i guess in, in in our equipment our our planter was a John Deere 496 planter, and and that we planted soybeans on, on the farm ground that we operated. But when Dr. Williams was ready to plant his test plots, then the uh, all of the planting units or all of the hoppers came off of the planting units, and we uh, we converted a six-row planter to a four-row planter, <laughs> and and uh, he would just stick a funnel down in the seed tube uh, where the hopper would, would uh, and the seed plates would regulate the seeds down through the seed tube and into the ground. So we, we'd sit on the planter, and he would hand us a manila envelope that had 100 seeds in it. And, and so he had these rows marked off in 100-foot increments, and the instructions were when the tractor started moving, start to dribble your seed into the seed tube, and then by the time the tractor stopped, you were to have run out of seed. Uh, of course, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, 
uh, accuracy, I guess you might say, <laughs> in that. But but uh, uh, I think that was kind of my my signal that I I didn't want to be in in research and development because <laughs> let, let me tell you the the toolbar to that 496 John Deere planter got awfully hard. I bet it did. Well, I just love that story, and uh, I'm glad you corrected me, so I'll get it right when I share it, too. Well, I guess, uh, you know, I know you're on the road traveling for business, and uh, I need to let you go here, but I just want to hear you say, what what is it like again when you look out there and you see all these soybeans as you're driving down the road just everywhere? and to realize uh, the very important role your family has played in making soybeans the number one crop in Arkansas. Well, it, it, uh, you know, it's, it's really north, nothing short of, of being an awesome feeling, you know, and, and uh, uh, to drive past a, a soybean field, you know, the middle of the growing season or, or here as we're about to wrap up harvest and, seeing a combine, you know, move across that field to know that, that uh your your grandfather, you know, had had an integral role and major part in 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 that crop, you know, coming to Arkansas, coming to the mid south and 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 uh you know, it being such a uh valuable part and integral part of of the uh you know, production system that that we have today and to the economic impact that 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 it has you know for a state like Arkansas well as we uh, celebrate Arkansas soybean month uh, I don't think we could do any better than to share that story with all our listeners uh, so they understand uh, where soybeans in Arkansas came from so we appreciate you Doug taking time to share those uh, remembrances of, of your childhood and your grandfather and, and his cohorts. So we all know uh, soybeans don't just come at the grocery store. <laughs> They're important in a lot of ways, and uh, we appreciate your role even still uh, as a leader in the soybean industry. Well, it, uh, I appreciate that, and, and uh, you know, as, a, as another generation comes along and, and gets involved, uh, you know, we need need young leaders to to step to the forefront, and it's good to see these young folks uh, get involved and to to you know promote agriculture, promote the different crops that they may be working with, and and hey, we certainly appreciate the uh, the work that that all these commodity organizations as well as Farm Bureau does to to promote agriculture in our state. Well, thank you very much, Doug, and uh, we'll uh, hope to talk to you again sometime in the future and uh, wish you the best as you wrap up uh, harvest uh, this month over there on the Grand Prairie. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, and I hope everyone uh, out there has a happy Thanksgiving. Finally, Ken Moore learns about a major new survey of forest landowners being conducted by the University of Arkansas at Monticello's College of Forestry, Agriculture, and Natural Resources. He talks to assistant professor Dr. Nana Tien, who is leading the project, and Dr. Matthew Pelkey, professor and Clippert Endowed Chair of Forestry. This is Ken Moore, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, I'm speaking with Dr. Nana 
Tien. She is assistant professor with the University of Arkansas at Monticello, College of Forestry, Agriculture, and Natural Resources, and the uh, college's Forest Resources Center. We're also speaking with Dr. Matthew Pelkey. He is a professor and associate director of research and the chair of the, uh, the Clifford Chair, if you will, in the College of Forestry, Agriculture, and Natural Resources. And so, uh, Dr. Pelkey and Dr. Tien, thank you both for joining us this afternoon on uh, this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be here. Well, we're here to talk about today and want to help you publicize, if we may, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, a survey that you are conducting now uh, through the college. Uh, it is uh, you're reach, reaching out to forest landowners in certification programs. And uh, Dr. Tian, I know this is uh, very important for the university to get their response. If you will just, in simple terms, explain uh, the survey and uh, how many people. I understand you've sent out uh, surveys to a large number of forest forest landowners. Yes, actually, for this survey, we send it out to 5,000 private landowners. So in the survey, we basically included some questions about, you know, landowners' ownership, about their forest land characteristics as well, and, you know, some other information about the certification program. So doing this survey, our objective here is just to try to you know, know more or try to understand more about the private landowners in Arkansas, their knowledge and also their perspectives for the forest certification. And we all know that in current environment, you know, we have the challenge of the climate change, you know, and also some other challenges in order to fulfill the sustainable management for the forest land here. We just wanted to encourage more private landowners to participate in the forest certification. But before doing that, we just wanted to know what's their knowledge level, what's their familiarity level, what's their you know perspectives, what's their opinion about the forest certifications here. So that's the basic you know objective or purpose for this survey. Okay, and. Uh just for you know perspective, I understand you sent out several thousand surveys. I mean, timber yep. and the forestry industry is a major commodity. It's a major. It, it drives the economies of much of South Arkansas, as you know. But how yep. many surveys did you actually send out? Five thousand. Wow, five thousand surveys. So yep. there are a lot of forest land property owners and managers that you're trying to reach and. Uh, I understand there's uh, 30 questions on the survey, and yep. uh, what are you seeking to learn about their familiarity with the uh, uh, certification programs? So basically, we just wanted to know, do they have some kind of basic understanding or basic knowledge about, uh, you know, why do we need to participate into the certification program as well as, you know, who needs to participate in this kind of program, and also what are the available certification programs here in Arkansas are. So that's the you know, basic stuff we wanted to know from this survey. Dr. Pelkey, if you will, just kind of follow up with that. It is important to gauge their understanding and knowledge about these programs. Uh, 
But again, you and I have spoken in the past, uh, but why is uh, understanding their attitudes and perspectives uh, about forest management so important? Well, Ken, that's a great question. It, it really stems from, from people who are consuming forest products, from those people that are, are building homes with wood, uh, from uh, major building contractors that, are, that want to use mass timbers for wood, uh, even people that are using paper products in their daily lives, whether it's, whether it's uh, sanitary tissues or writing papers, and they want to know, they want to feel some assurance that these products are sustainably produced. And so the forest certification systems basically are like an auditing, and, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a voluntary voluntary program that allows a landowner to demonstrate that they're following good forest management practices and this is becoming very important because most of the major uh, wood fiber producers, whether it's Georgia Pacific or Potlatch Deltic uh, or Interfor or any of the other companies, they really want to buy uh, timber that's coming from certified forests. And so it's important that we understand what landowners know about these forests so that we can help them get into these certification programs. Thank you. Uh, just again for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar, uh, the, the significance of all of this, Arkansas has nearly 19 million acres of forest land and approximately 345,000 non-industrial private landowners own nearly 60% of that land. That, that, that's significant. That's very significant. Yet forest industry corporations control about a quarter of that. Uh, the National Forest makes up nearly 14% of our forest land in the state, and uh, when it comes to forestry products and timber production, Arkansas is ranked sixth in the nation in forest products with a value of over $6.5 billion. So, again, uh, certification for these landowners and their understanding of it, Dr. Tian, is, is vital. Uh, how long do they have, or how long will this survey uh period last, and, uh, you know, what type of response do you hope to get? Dr. Tian. Hey, hey I'm here. So for the 5,000 surveys we mailed out, we hope to get at least 20% of the response. So in that way, it can help us to really understand, you know, what the private landowners views about the certification program in Arkansas. So generally speaking, from a research perspective, you know, when we do some project based on a project, so we are expecting at least 20 to 30 percent of the response rate. Okay. All right. I'm noticing here on your uh, news release that uh, that you sent out recently, it says certifications provide a variety of benefits not only to society, but to the landowners themselves. And some of those benefits include such things as healthier forests, greater access to markets, premium prices for some buyers, less waste, better environmental practices, uh, and a safer working environment, just to name a few. So uh, there are great benefits to this. And uh, Dr. Pelkey, how is the university and the, and the college there uh, trying to, beyond just sending out the surveys, trying to really encourage. You just said you hope to get about 20% response, I believe. But, uh, you know, this is really important for them to, to understand the importance of their certification. 
Yes, so once we receive this information, we'll be able to develop outreach programs uh, and uh, training programs. We've, we've already received uh, over 100 responses to the survey. Okay. And, uh, uh, we're, we're starting to get some preliminary information, which we'll be reporting as soon as the, the survey is over. But what we'll use this for, uh, aside from research, is helping us to identify education programs, uh, working with the different certification systems, uh, to encourage and make it easier for Arkansas landowners uh, to get into those programs. Once we know what they feel about it and what they don't know, we can we can assist them better uh, through our outreach and extension programs. Very good, very very good. Well, I certainly hope you you get some uh, good response here over the next several weeks. You've already got 100, you said, so that's yeah. a good start. To the uh, you know when you send out five thousand you, you know you probably will not get you know a hundred percent of course but you know a good response uh, hopefully twenty thirty forty percent would be excellent uh, Dr. Felty while I have you here I just might ask you just your uh, uh, follow up on on something we talked about uh, about four or five months ago uh, as we near the end of the year uh, and we're still dealing with this pandemic and all of that. Uh, you know, the fall semester's gotten underway down there uh, at UAM, but uh, how has the industry, the timber and wood products industry, responded now that we've kind of settled into knowing we're dealing with to the effects of this pandemic? Are, uh, is it having any continued negative impacts, or, or just how has the industry responded? Well, we know that the housing market has really responded extremely well in the last in the last quarter, unexpectedly so. I, I I myself didn't see that coming with the number of housing starts, and of course prices for lumber and plywood have shot through the roof. Uh, but what the industry largely is doing is staying hunkered down. They're 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 really staying prepared for what they think is going to be a very tough winter and spring. And that's actually contributed to the higher prices since they didn't normally, in a normal situation, a really good market, they'd respond with a lot more production. But they haven't done that so much. Uh, and so they're, they're really have maintained production, and that's why prices have shot up around the United States. Uh, the industry is, is, is still worried about what's to come over the next few months. And in some ways, I think uh, what, what other people have mentioned, including Dr. Fauci, I'll, I'll quote him on that, it's not necessarily an economic crisis it's a it's a pandemic crisis and that's what's really controlling our economy now yeah exactly uh it is a pandemic crisis and yet uh just uh yesterday we read and we get reports that uh a vaccine uh to the virus may uh be soon uh it's been uh determined that uh one, the pharmaceutical company, I believe, that's been testing a vaccine says it's very effective, and uh, the economic markets, the uh, stock markets, if you will, are responding very favorably over the last 24 hours or so to that news. And Dr. Fauci, I believe I heard him, or I didn't hear him, but I read where he is very favorable. He says he would be willing to uh, take that vaccine himself if it is released. So hopefully that will be something that will bring very encouraging news to markets all over the country. Yes, I think when, when public confidence is restored and our ability to go out and function and be safe on a regular basis, I think what we'll probably see is a very rapid economic turnaround uh, and growth. Uh, I think people are tired of this pandemic, and I think they're going to respond very well to a, to an effective vaccine. 
Yes, sir. I think we're all ready for that. Uh, well, listen, I appreciate you both taking a few minutes to share uh, the importance of your survey with me today, and uh, I wish you the best of luck in getting response, and uh, and then we look forward to, uh, you know, working with you uh, down there at uh, UAM in the future about uh, uh, how you're reaching out to the public and landowners. This certification is so very important for them as well, and we hope that uh, we continue to see, you know, a positive response to the markets uh, and in our timber industry. So thank you, uh, Dr. Pelkey and Dr. Tian. We've been speaking with uh, Dr. Matthew Pelkey and Dr. Nana Tian uh, at the uh, University of Arkansas Monticello College of Forestry, Agriculture, and Natural Resources on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. That does it for another Arkansas AgCast. We'll be back next Thursday with the latest on Arkansas's top industry.